Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology with me, Tiasha Zaitz. Today's discussion will be all about global digital health innovation, which innovations are reasonable to implement in healthcare today and more. I spoke with Hassan Chaudhry, who is a global healthcare expert and worked in several countries across the world. He's currently employed with the Healthcare UK, which is a joint initiative of the Department of Health and Social Care, NHS England, and the Department for International Trade. His global role includes advising commercial teams in over 100 UK embassies. So in this discussion, you will hear more about his international experiences what he saw, and which technologies are currently not ready for prime time just yet. You might be surprised by his opinion. Enjoy the show, and to learn more about the podcast, go to facesofdigitalhealth.com. And if you haven't yet, subscribe to the show to be notified about new episodes automatically. Now to today's discussion. Hassan, welcome Quick intro question. Do you have a favorite uh, country in the world? I, I think my favorite country in the world is South Africa. Why is that? Um, when I went, and this is when Harry and Meghan went to South Africa, and this is a lovely time, it was so beautiful. Cape Town was so beautiful. Stellenbosch was so beautiful. And there was such warmth. And there's got so many people there who need health care. Apartheid ended but there's still so many people that are living under something like it. And, and I feel that's where we can make a big change. And I found people with a real desire for digital health. I loved it. Mm -hmm. Okay, I didn't uh, think that we're going to expand the topic so quickly, but still, if we stay with South Africa, what did you discover there? Because um, I did some episodes already about that market, and it's very clear that it has the population that's more wealthy, and it's relatively easy to create solutions for, for them because they can afford them. What kind of solutions impressed you? I think, first of all, what impressed me was the desire to get equitable health care for everybody. So one problem South Africa has is that people who don't live in South Africa go into it for health care. Around Southern Africa, they're going in. So you've got people who don't belong in the country who need healthcare. And South Africa is saying, we'll still try and help you. And when I saw it, I, and I was hearing stories of people bleeding out at A&E, in hospitals where there's no beds, where townships, people are scared to go into townships. So there's people who are saying, we'll do the last mile delivery of the medication because we come from the township. So I saw people who are coming together so that their community-based healthcare was right. And that's what I was impressed with. The tech wasn't the point. They're never going to be able to compete with the more advanced artificial intelligence stuff that you can see. That wasn't the goal. The goal was a desire to use technology for healthcare to help everyone. The reason that I asked you about your favorite country um, is because you worked for over 100 UK embassies so far. And I wanted to ask you, what exactly does that mean? How does that even look like? Okay, so every developed country in the world wants more deals for its companies. And it wants those deals for two reasons. It wants its company, so the American commercial services and the Israelis 
the Dutch, the Canadians, the, the British, they're all trying to get companies to come into their country and set up and have jobs. So we always try and encourage people to come to the UK, but we also want to get deals for our companies on the way out. So that's what the commercial teams and the embassies are doing. They're winning deals. So we've got a great team, for example, in United Arab Emirates, um, and someone I'll name check, uh, Finola. So Finn is understanding what the needs are of buyers. So when she hears of a good British company, she'll connect them. So Finn will ask me, what's the right British company? Who is it I should put forward for the opportunity? And that's what I do. I'm sitting in London, supporting 96 countries, where all the embassy teams are trying to make these deals. You are actually a social worker by, by background, if I'm not mistaken. In, in one of the interviews, you mentioned that you became that by accident after finishing the university. How does one become that by accident? So it's a very long story, but I was working with social services in Hackney and there was someone there who was blind, a blind social worker who needed help. And, and I just finished my degree and I was there for the summer. And I ended up supporting him to the point where I was then being used as a social worker when no one else was around. So I would go do assessments. I would meet people in their homes. I would assess residential homes, vulnerable patients. And it really helped me understand what was going on in health and care because I was co-located in, in a GP surgery, general practice in primary care. So I got to see the connection between health and social care. And then later when I moved into healthcare, that connection really helped me because I could see the continuum of care. And it isn't just about going to hospital. It's about how people live as well as get sick. And I think that's really valuable. Indeed, in your current role, so Healthcare UK, which you mentioned earlier, is a joint initiative of the Department of Health and Social Care, the NHS England and the Department for International Trade. And the Department of Health and Social Care is really interesting to me because as you said, when it comes to health, it, it involves much more than just data about blood result parameters. And if we look at the U.S., uh, when digitalization of healthcare happened, it was basically encouraged after the High Tech Act, after the money poured in for IT. And at the recent HIMSS Digital Conference, I had a discussion with Kelly Cronin, and the obvious observation was that social care hasn't seen such an investment yet. So what do you observe in the UK or elsewhere? And how do you see that this gap between the tech side of social care and healthcare could be bridged to really bring holistic care to, to everyone? Fantastic question. The first thing is that social care historically has been the poor relation. We've only really focused when someone's got ill and we've been reactive. And Ali Parser of Babylon calls that sick care. We're not doing health care, we're doing sick care. So the challenge for us is how do we look after people when they get ill? And that's the wrong challenge. The real challenge is how do we support people to live well? And therefore, we shouldn't wait until they get ill. We should be supporting them. And that's why care and health need to be connected and integrated. And unfortunately, that's not something that we've done well. So often we discharge a patient from hospital. They go back to their care home. The information doesn't follow them properly. doesn't go into an electronic care record, a health record. There's no personal records for them that they can maintain. And therefore, all the data gets lost. We can't be predictive 
And if you can't be predictive, you can't be prescriptive. And I want to name check a British company called Accela Innovations. It's because the founder's daughter is Alexa. So he reversed the name into Accela. And they're a fantastic company who are using what we consider to be things in healthcare and putting them into the care homes. They've got an electronic patient record. They've got a personal health record. It's a fantastic piece of kit. And all the monitoring is all available there. If we just try to stick uh, with this topic for a while longer and trying to think about how we could integrate the data from community and uh, healthcare in the hospital setting or the primary setting, what kind of trends um, are you observing there in terms of a comprehensive electronic healthcare record that would be shareable, that patients would have access and, and control over? Because um, on the one hand, from the just uh, not even tech perspective, but from the consensus and social perspective, it's really difficult to expect that different organizations are all going to come together under one roof and in, in one network. It's also very uh, cybersecurity risky, though we do have some technologies that can already mitigate that to a certain extent. But I guess the the challenge of having a comprehensive record that wouldn't have holes in the data because of lack of connectivity is still there. So we've thought that with blockchain startups or with some startups that already offer patient healthcare records that the thinking reversed in the sense that maybe you could have a healthcare record on your phone, but you would just be the one adding the data in it and safely secure them. So uh, is this the way forward or how do you see that this could be managed in a different infrastructure way? Okay. The, the data has to follow the person. Now, for example, imagine someone goes to hospital and they have an appointment for dermatology. But they also have a separate illness. So maybe they're going to see somebody about HIV. Two completely different areas. But the patient also has depression and they're being dealt with in primary care. That means the primary care has one record. The hospital department for dermatology has a record. They're also on the HIV record in the community. And they've got a PAC, PAS record or PACS record. They've got all sorts of different things. And they're all in separate places. And until you gather around the citizen, around the person, they're always going to remain siloed. And because of the current concerns about data security and privacy, we don't want the data to move. So what we need is a record that follows the person and it has windows into it. And each window is related to what you're looking at. Is it a diabetes record that you want? So it will focus on HbA1c as an example. If it's to do with the dermatology, then we're looking at whether we're giving you biologics, right? Those are the kind of questions that are completely different. So the windows need to be different, but it has to follow the person. And we haven't got that. The closest I've seen, and I saw this in Orlando at, at HIMSS recently, I met a company called Innovasa. And Innovasa gather the record, no matter where you are, into one. They pull the record. So if you've been in five different hospitals, and three different emergency settings around the country, they don't care. They'll pull the data to one record, a common data model. And it's that that we need. Without a common data model, we're always going to have data silos. A data lake won't help. It has to follow the person. Do you see anything similar or uh, what's the thinking around that in the UK? So we have tried to do this. We've got a summary care record 
where information that's related to the patient is available, even if it's not in the same exact centre that you were looked after. But that's regional. So to have a national shared care record and be able to do that communication is where we want to achieve, where we want to go. But for us to be able to do this requires someone to bridge the gap. And that's where I see companies really trying to move into. We've done it for research. So we've got something called Health Data Research UK, HDR UK, which is trying to pull data for research. But we want it for direct care. And until it's available for a citizen and direct care, it's, it's not good enough. So we do have the NHS app which every person in the country could have. I think we've got to 50% of the population now has NHS app, but that doesn't have all of your record. And how do we get it to follow you? And that's still just uh, health data, right? It's not uh, also social care information. No, and it doesn't contain the other information about you that you might want. As an example, wellness. How much water have you drunk? How many steps have you made? How good was your sleep? Lots of people collect that information on their own, but it's not connected to anything. And because it isn't, we don't know your resting heart rate. How do we know that it's elevated when there's a problem? We don't have a baseline. So we need to put all of this together to help citizens look after themselves. And our system just doesn't have enough people anymore to be able to look after you by reacting. We just can't cope. We don't have the doctors anymore. We don't have the nurses anymore. We don't have the money. I don't think any health system is sustainable on the planet just waiting for people to come to it. We need to step forward and say, we will help you look after yourself. And in the UK, we call that self-driven healthcare. You mentioned hymns uh, that uh, was taking place in Orlando. What, what kind of trends caught your attention? Three things come to mind. There's much more fear around cybersecurity. Lots of fear not just because of what's happening with Russia and the Ukraine, but not long ago, Ireland, their health service executive, wiped out by a ransomware attack. And that's the kind of thing that scares everybody. And when WannaCry happened a few years ago to the NHS, I remember the NHS team at NHS Digital went to GCHQ, which is the government agency for cyber. And GCHQ said to them, sure, we'll help you. We have one and a half people available. And NHS Digital said, no, the entire NHS is in trouble. We need more. And GCHQ didn't have people with healthcare background or enough of them to support. So we've had to really beef up our resilience. We've had to go to private agencies and companies. And Templar execs were the ones that helped NHS Digital. And that's what we need now. Every single country in the world needs to make sure they're protected and they've got the reserves. And that was in the mind of people at HIMSS. Interoperability was a big deal, massive deal, and health inequalities was a big deal. So those are the three things that I saw that was very different from previous years. The common things are there. How are we doing on EMRs and telemedicine and genomics? Those were there, but the three I mentioned are the big ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess we're going to have to wait again uh, for a new cycle of blockchain being at the front center of attention, which was... I mean, three, four years ago, it was all we talked about. Everyone wants blockchain. Everyone, everyone is rooting for distributed ledger. But no one yet works out what is the problem it has to solve and go from the problem to the solution. They've gone from the solution to the problem, which is the wrong way around. I'm sure we'll find ways to do it. Look, I met a company called Patient Tory, who've decentralized 90% of American patient records. 
they've decentralized them. They're ready for them to do a layer of activity on top of. But someone's asking, okay, you've decentralized it, but what's the advantage? What is it we get from decentralizing? And that's the question that we haven't yet answered. Given that you're working with um, several organizations across the world, I wanted to pick your brain about what are the decision makers and basically those that are implementing these solutions, what are they struggling with most when deciding what to implement in healthcare? Because we discussed the paradox of choice in healthcare, the fact that if we look at investments, according to Startup Health, digital health startups raised uh, 22 billion American dollars in 2020, twice as much 44 in 2021. CB Insights even cites higher numbers. In one of the sessions, Casey Ross at Hims Digital mentioned that there's over 80 unicorns in the digital health space in the U.S. So there's definitely a lot of uh, things happening. So how do we make choices? Okay. First, there's too much noise. Lots of companies are saying they're good. And they're saying, look at how much we've raised. And I think CIOs are becoming wise to this and saying, I can't, I can't take all of this noise. Can you solve my problem? And that's what they're starting to ask. The hype isn't good enough anymore. What's, what is my problem? Can you solve it? Also, people are saying, I don't want a point solution. I don't want a fragment. I want this to fit into my strategy. So it becomes strategy first, solution second. A few years ago, this great technology sounds amazing. I'm going to put it into my system and then work out how it fits. CIOs all over the world have had too much of this now. And I'm saying, no, my strategy comes first. You've got to fit into mine. And the really great tech expands the strategy. It says, you're doing this, but you can do this now. And if you're able to expand the strategy by offering a new capability, that's where CIOs go to HIMS and they go to Vive and they go to other places. They're looking for something that's a complete game changer. I saw something called Butterfly. And, and Butterfly has the ultrasound on a chip. So it means that you don't have a cart. You can do the ultrasound and you have to change the heads because they're different shaped heads. If you're going to do uh, one for a pregnant mother, you're, the, the shape of the head is very different to when you do ultrasound of the heart, as an example. Uh, and now, because it's on a chip, you just press a button and it works out. It wants to do the, the baby. And you, don't, you, you attach it to your phone. So that means you, you don't have a car. You're now mobile, moving around, saving time. So what does that do to your strategy when you know it's possible to do something completely different? That's, what, that's where CIOs are looking for. So do you fit my strategy, number one? And number two, do you expand my strategy? And the best companies are doing that. To which extent do you think that there are solutions that could potentially improve workflow processes, but perhaps don't have the right business model just yet? For example, if you wanted to create voice technologies for the pre-population of uh, forms in uh, EHRs or healthcare IT systems that could potentially have massive improvements on the time doctors spent with EHRs. And we know that Nuance has been doing this for radiologists for years, but there's still not 
an expanded version of that for EHRs on the broader level. Now, of course, if you wanted to do that, there's uh, plenty of challenges uh, connected to how do you make those devices accurate in the noisy environment in healthcare? How do you ensure that uh, doctors use good enough devices for voice capture? And in the end, uh, you have to do studies to really show that uh, time difference in, in the time spent for EHR records. So still quite a long way to go, knowing that CIOs are going to look at a horizon of solutions and decide which one to take. And I'm sure that there's a lot of things that uh, clinicians would really like to have and that would make their work easier, but are perhaps not on top of the priority list for the investments. So then you have a problem. I agree that we need to be thinking about that area, but I disagree with voice. So this is an odd thing, right? I think voice is fantastic, but because now, a bit like the blockchain discussion, we now think we must find a voice answer. So we try and crowbar in the voice answer. We need to step back for a second and think, what is the thing that will save time? What is the thing that will get valuable information into the EMR that reduces burden? Because physicians are sensitive to burden. So to your question, are, are there other innovations that we should look at that perhaps don't get the attention they deserve? Uh, and I think they are. But those are the ones that are ignored because there's an obsession with, oh, look, we can do voice stuff now. How do we find a voice way of doing it? So let me give an example. There's a really cool company in the UK called Cardmedic. And Cardmedic came about because people were in full PPE and you couldn't see their faces. So they're talking to you through muffled masks. And the patient doesn't know what's being said and they can't communicate back. So they said, how about we give you an iPad, a tablet with a digital flashcard? So if you have a stomachache, you can press the button. I've got stomachache. Then it can ask you another question. For example, is it a stabbing pain? Is it on the left side? So you just press the button and you show it. So now the communication is easy. So Card Medic has now got to the point where they're realizing, hold on, we're not just a communication tool. This information can go into the EMR. Now, what's better than voice? It's when the patient themselves follow a route, a linear route that tells you the problem that's already coded and goes into the EMR. That, to me, is a very smart thing to do. And Cardmedica working with a company called Cognitant. And Cognitant allow you to prescribe health content. So you're now leaving the console, 50% recall, right? Typically, or, or less. I've forgotten what the physician told me. So imagine I give you a prescription, not just of a drug, but of the health information that tells you this is what you should do, and this is the site you should go to. So you don't go to Google and mess it up. And another company called Orca, which you and I have discussed before, can I also prescribe an app? Now, the advantage of Orca and Cognitant is that they're built into the workflow. I just press a button and it prescribes something to you. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to worry. I can select as a physician. Can you see how it makes the job easier? But none of them voice. And, and that's what we've got to think about. What's the problem we're solving? and not think about the solution first. Let's think about the problem and fall in love with that. I, I did have another question before when you mentioned that what uh, CIOs are struggling with is just to point solutions that address one simple thing. 
And to a certain extent, I have a hard time imagining a company that would solve a lot of problems really good because problems in healthcare are so complex that you just can't avoid really focusing on one problem and trying to solve it. Of course, taking into account the complexity of the whole clinical environment. Alan, so this is something for me, a very important issue. Uh, there's a company in the UK called Infinity Health. And Infinity has worked out that people keep writing down tasks in Excel. And the problem with that is you don't know whose task it is. You don't have the task that's been done. You don't have it's been done well. So they made something that enables you to know all of the tasks and where the handovers have happened or haven't happened. The amount of things that could go wrong in healthcare because you don't know who's got the task or has it been done are tremendous. A friend of mine, his mother's in hospital in Florida. And from what I recall, he has a carer there who he pays, not the hospital, he pays his own carer to sit with his mum because he lives in another state. And someone came along and said, I want to give your mum diabetes shot, an insulin shot. So the carer phones him in Texas and says, guess what? Someone's here to give your mum an insulin shot. And the guy says, but my mum doesn't have diabetes. And the carer was repeatedly being told, no, I, I give insulin shots to this woman every night. And they, they were saying, no, there's no insulin shots ever. You don't know who this woman is. It turns out they were going to give the mum insulin shots, even though she didn't have diabetes. Now, what would that have done? They had to phone up the, the specialist, wake him up in the middle of the night to stop this from happening. How many times are we having a vulnerable phone? It's happening. And for me, that's a big deal. And just knowing where the tasks are on something like Trello would be amazing. And that's what Infinity Health are. Sometimes I think we jump to the future. We think about how we can get some quantum uh, computing into the hospital when we're still just about to kill patients back on a regular basis. There's definitely a lot of room for improvement and optimization. Basically, you just reminded me on the interview that I had in the beginning of the year with a few analysts from McKinsey, and they basically said the same thing with different words, and that is that a lot of that's solving important issues is already existing. It's 10 years old, maybe. It's just that it's not very used just yet. And I'm, I work a lot in the medication management space, and it's pretty obvious how, for example... In the U.S., uh, you're going to have uh, many or most hospitals already using uh, barcoding for checking the right drug for the right patient, if the patient is the right one, whereas uh, the U.K. and many other countries across the world are hardly starting with electronic prescribing and then closing patient management or are still just doing everything uh, on paper. Can I give you just two more examples quickly? Sure. And, and this, this is where we've got closed-loop medication, we've got electronic prescribing, and we're still harming patients. When I give you the prescribed, when I dispense the box to you, I assume you can read English. You're now, you've now picked up your medication and you've gone home, but you don't necessarily know what's written on the box. And guess what? People are causing themselves harm because they can't read the label because they don't necessarily speak English. So what we're asking is, can we have bilingual medication labeling just for the people who need it? That's the big deal, right? Patient safety, health inequalities. We haven't got to that level. And to be able to put an extra label 
on the on medication is the easiest thing in the world compared to the stuff that we talk about. But we haven't done that. Yeah, though I guess the question is uh, which would be the second language of the label. I remember six or seven years ago I was uh, talking to a, a designer in healthcare from France and she was explaining to me how they designed a solution where they would basically use drawings to try to communicate with patients that didn't speak the language of the doctors. So in many ways, there's still a lot of solutions for healthcare that are really not even digital. Though, you know, when it comes to translations, you could, there's a lot of uh, free translation apps already out there today. So that's a different story. But the point is still the same that, yeah, digital is just one part of, of the whole problem. I, I love that. That's why we made a distinction. Innovation doesn't necessarily mean technology, and technology doesn't necessarily mean innovation. Innovation is a specific attempt to achieve something beneficial through the use of something new, but it can also mean using something that's old in a new way. And if you've been using these drawings, IKEA use these drawings. This is how you're going to build your uh, chest of drawers. We need to just think about why it is that patients don't know what to do with the medication. And we actually had a, a horrible incident recently where some Syrian refugees in the UK who couldn't speak English properly were unable to work out what to do with the medication and gave the wrong medication dose to their child. That's the kind of thing that we're getting now. So we, we now have a company called Written Medicine that provides those labels. So if it is Polish, if it is Urdu, Whatever the language is, they'll put it on. We talked a lot about the, the UK companies that you came across, but I would like to dig deeper into those 100 countries that you either worked with or visited. Based on the experiences that you had so far, can you name any interesting examples of how uh, you perceived other healthcare systems? What are the things that gave you something to think about? Okay, let's start with a global overview. Most digital health companies will eventually go for the US or China. That's where the money is. And the US advantage is that they're very good at taking something and commercializing it and packaging it. So if you get acquired or invested in by an American company, you're going to do a fantastic job of becoming um, a world-leading product. Other countries aspire to it. So that you've got a mid-level, and then the mid-level I would put France, I would put, you know, Germany, mid-level. And then you've got the smaller countries who are nimble. That's where Israel, Estonia, Finland, that's where they play. South Korea I'd also put in that zone. Singapore wants to be in that zone too. Then underneath it, the countries that need more help. So weirdly, I would put Austria ahead of Germany, right? I, I think Germany is big, but Austria is more advanced. So you get weird things where a more advanced country is right next to one that isn't. It isn't about region. It's about level of maturity. And typically you see the amount of money available in that system. Going all the way down, when are we going to see countries from the GCC, so Dubai, Abu Dhabi, starting to export out? We've got lots of companies going into them and their systems are becoming quite cool. But when are we going to see them developing? So some countries are really about pushing their tech out because they're so good. And those are the ones that are the most interesting. So when you go to HIMSS Europe in Helsinki, 
you'll see some fantastic Finnish companies. And that tells me not only is the system strong, but it's strong enough to export. And I think that's where the real focus is for digital health worldwide. Some interesting companies in Brazil, some in Africa, but majority of the interesting ones are in that zone, the nimble zone, which is definitely Israel, Estonia, Finland, maybe the Netherlands. And I'd like to think that the British are somewhere in between. They're mid-level in size, but they've got the agility of some of those smaller countries. So we're a bit odd in that phrase. I find it interesting that you mentioned that digital health companies would eventually want to land in the US and China. Obviously, the, the US is pretty clear, uh, no uh, question there. However, I would like to see if you can expand the thought about China, because China is big. The Chinese are very innovative. They're very competitive. They're very hungry for innovation and success. And also the culture is specific, the language is specific. So there's just so many barriers that I see that I find it hard to imagine how you would even start considering that market and how long would it even take you to enter it? Fantastic question. The first is that China's a bit like Dubai, where they want you to come in so they can work out what you do, destroy you and defeat you and be better than you. The goal is we might not be as good as you now, but give us three years. We're going to be better than you. And China very much has that feeling. So the opportunity for good technology, really clever technology to get into China and make lots of money is available. But the goal for China is we're going to learn and we're going to beat you. We're going to have more AI papers than anyone in the world. And then they are now more publications in AI than the US. More money available. The size of the market is huge. So the opportunity for companies is, do I avoid the Chinese market? Knowing that they're going to try and accelerate or do i just enjoy the ride and the money's huge how do you take china even coca-cola had to go regionally in china because it's that bigger market you had to go slowly once you've got a route into china however you get it and it might be primary care it might be secondary care whatever the route is the the challenge culturally is that china doesn't traditionally have primary care you know, their goal has always been i'm going to see a doctor and if you're not a doctor you're not good enough i want to get to the hospital But they've done something interesting where they've got everyone on the mobile phones. So Ping An, good doctor. Now everyone is able to access healthcare on their phones. So they've jumped an evolutionary step into the modern world, but they've missed out their primary care bit, which is where Israel, Finland and, and Britain would argue that we have strength. So there's a big call in China for you to help them with primary care, community care, community radiology even. Those are the things that the Chinese have been asking for. Very interesting uh, thoughts. I, I do remember still, it was a while uh, back since I was digging into the, the Chinese market, but I thought it was interesting when they even had basically kiosks where you would do a telemedicine visit and at the same time that kiosk was also a pharmacy, so you could also get a few just pharmaceutical goods there. But making the comparison between how the Chinese work really reminded me of the book um, AI Superpowers, which very nicely describes why even giants such as Uber just tried and, and failed on the Chinese market. Yeah, and let me be clear, I don't think the Chinese market's easy, but if you do get into China, you do well with China, and they view you as unique enough that actually there's no point trying to copy you. What you have really adds to what we do, then it's a great market. 
But if you go along with something that everyone else has, and you're not really much different, China's not the market for you. When it comes to digital health innovation and adoption, one of the questions that's always uh, important is where is the money going to come from? Who's going to fund innovation and who is going to fund uh, the adoption and implementation of these solutions? Uh, in Europe, we currently see that a lot of money is getting uh, into digitizing healthcare systems. A lot of this was encouraged uh, with uh, COVID. And at the same time, I do wonder to which extent do you think money is the solution? Because if you don't know how to go strategically about innovation and implementations, it can very quickly happen that the money that's on the table is not going to be rationally spent. It's a big topic. We've made so many mistakes in digital transformation where we burnt money. In fact, what we should have just done is had a party where we burnt the money. It would have been better for us because what we've done is we've tried to put digital transformation in place and the staff who've tried to use that technology have been hurt. They've been hurt because their time's wasted. They've been hurt because they've had to learn new processes and new technology. Their jobs have got harder and they've lost the enthusiasm for digital. And that's dangerous because if you lose the enthusiasm, you become cynical. So when something does come along that is useful, you're less likely to adopt it. You're less enthusiastic. That's why it's better for us not to try it until we get it right. But all over the world, digital transformation has gone wrong repeatedly, and we've taken away the goodwill from stuff. So the money's not the key. In fact, sometimes the desire to spend the money before the end of the financial year means you make decisions that you wouldn't have made otherwise. Oh, I'll just I have to spend this money, I'll just spend it. So money first is a problem. It forces you into the wrong lens. It forces you to think, I must spend this money, when really it should be thinking, what is our strategy? How do we take our time to get there? How do we bring staff along with us? How do we train them? How do we not rush them? And then how do we make sure we ask them how to improve it? If you encourage people to be part of the journey, you actually have better results. If you impose things on people, it doesn't work. So I think money isn't the answer. And I think it's possible to get great technology with very little money, actually. A lot of companies want to get in to prove themselves. They're willing to prove themselves. And if you work with them and they prove themselves, they'll make their money later. So the question is, can we do it right? And I think we mess that up all the time. We've been given four million to spend. What are we going to spend it on, guys? It's the wrong question. I'm starting to think that also we just need to accept that investments are also going to include failure. Not all implementations are going to be successful. And that's just part of the journey, which is obviously a little bit difficult to accept because if you invest, you want to have the return on that investment. I'm going to say something that's really odd. If it's good tech, it shouldn't fail. If it's really good tech, if it works, it shouldn't fail. If it fails, that might indicate that there's a problem with the tech. Maybe that company hasn't really included everybody. So I won't name this company, but there's one company in general practice that's supposed to make things easier for triage. And in the UK, we have a receptionist for the family doctor. And the receptionists hate the system because all the work lands on them. 
it's supposed to make it easy for the doctor. It doesn't really. It's supposed to make it easy for the patient. It doesn't really. But it makes it horrible, horrific for the receptionists. So guess what? No one wants to use it. When this thing was designed, it wasn't designed with the receptionist in mind, who then has to route the call and do the paperwork. And that's why things fail sometimes, because it hasn't planned out. So should we blame the people doing the transformation? Or should we think actually the tech wasn't fit for purpose in the first place? So sometimes it is a sign why we don't get the transformation, why we don't get the deployment. And other times it's because we didn't bring the people along. But I just want to make it clear, to be fair, sometimes it's a sign that the tech wasn't designed correctly. If we stick with the, the UK market, are there any good practices from the UK that you could share regarding how can decision makers or policymakers mitigate the paradox of choice with innovation rising in healthcare? I think there's an area of the country that gets a lot of good press, right? Surrey and borders. And I was speaking to some of the team there. And what they've tried to do is bring fresh eyes. So Catherine Church, who's their chief digital officer, came from fintech. And having come from a finance background, not a deep healthcare background, the challenge for them is very different. They're trying to bring fresh eyes to the problem. And, and they've done really well. Because it's just viewed now as what should we do to help people adopt our technology without all of the baggage? And I think that's one of the things we find that really works, actually, to come at this problem with fresh eyes, not the same cynical 10, 15 years of digital transformation in the NHS. We are coming to the end of this discussion, but uh, I do want to ask, are there any other countries that uh, you would like to mention, anything that stood out for you when you were working in different environments or came across any interesting information? I think Barcelona. And the reason why I like Barcelona and Catalonia generally is because there's a can-do attitude. And attitude matters. It's how do people want to work together? And Catalonia, they've got their longitudinal care record. They've got the Barcelona Health Hub. If you get a chance and you get to see the connectors, Lisa Dueck is a good example. Aileen Noisette is a good example. They're the people that will plug you into something that's really happening in the area. And, and I, I really enjoy when you've got a community around you and the community wants to see the best. So they will work out what the good tech is and get it to the right people. And, and that, that's why I think Barcelona deserves real credit. It's in the interview that I had with uh, Hannah Pohion, and she was working in 31 uh, different countries, working on the regional and national uh, challenges with open ecosystems, uh, projects with open ecosystems. And she also mentioned several factors that contribute to the success of these large-scale projects and one is the environment, the second is the understanding of what open ecosystem even means and then there's the will, what you were basically mentioning about Barcelona. Yeah, still plenty of challenges to solve and address and I guess when you think about these factors, really think about them, you can understand why the healthcare transformation in the digital sense is not happening faster than we might like as patients. And absolutely. And, and I was I'm really happy to see Sheba Hospital in Israel. They've got their ARC, 
and ARC is their innovation center, open innovation, and ARC are now working with hospitals around the world. And again, it's about will, it's about desire. They know what to do, they know how to make it work. We need people who are doers. It's, I guess, we, we have a lot of people in the column. I guess in, in under 100 episodes, one of the speakers on the show was Eker Zimlichman, who was explaining the whole structure of their innovation center, which is really amazing because they put into the same building the Ministry of Health, that, that part that's deal, that deals with digitalization. You've got startups in on one floor. Uh, there's a lot of options for doctors and nurses and healthcare professionals to try to innovate. So, yeah, we might want to revisit that example again. Yeah, I was amazing. And I, I was with him in London not long ago having lunch. And he was explaining to me that ARC want to make new ARC centers around the world. I think they're going to set one up in Chicago because they've realized that their ethos is the thing that wins. It's not the idea. The idea is very simple. The four levels, internal innovation, open innovation, academia, industry. That's quite simple. It's their it's their undo attitude. And I think that's why when I see people in America, and Gil Bash as an example, right? It's the can-do attitude that I'm looking at. In the UK, you've got people like Tony Young. People are saying, let's just do it. Don't worry about the naysayers. Let's get it done. And that's what digital health needs right now. I was hoping that you would say that ARC is going to be established somewhere in Europe because uh, the US already has that innovation mindset. I Probably a decade ago, innovation was happening inside hospitals where basically clinicians were encouraged to innovate and then create companies and the hospital would just have an equity or a stake in that in that company. And we don't really have that kind of mindset or approach in Europe. Watch this space is all I can say about ARC and Europe. That's, that's, I'll leave it there. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. If you enjoyed the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast. It can be very simple if you just go to lovethepodcast.com slash faces of digital health and you'll be redirected to the platform appropriate for your device. Additionally, if you enjoyed the show, do subscribe to the podcast to be notified about new episodes automatically. Stay tuned.